Hi, I want to welcome you to something a little different than the normal Noise Creators podcast in that this is going to actually be a chapter from the audiobook of my last book, Processing Creativity. They say if you love something, then you have to set it free. So that's exactly what I'm doing. A year ago, I put out this book and I really want it to keep spreading to people. And I realized one of the ways you have to do that sometimes is by making it free. So from right now till July 1st, this book will be free and a different chapter of it will come out every week for the next few weeks. And it'll stay available for free till July 1st. And then I'm going to delete these podcasts as well. During this time, the Kindle book will be 99 cents, but the physical book will remain at the regular price because, you know, they cost money to print. So enjoy this free audiobook. It's a very similar subject to what you hear on this podcast most of the time. And if you enjoy it, please, please, please pay it back. You know, this book usually costs almost $20 on Audible. The way you can pay it back is just telling somebody else who will enjoy it about it. It's really important to me that these ideas spread. And that's why I'm doing this. So I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you spread the word. Thank you. Hey, before we get started, I want to tell you about Manic Merch, who's sponsoring this podcast. They want you to stop selling merch like an idiot. In 10 minutes, you can upload designs and sell merch with your own store of every popular merch item, while Manic Merch handles sales, shipping, customer service issues so that creators can create and not be bothered while still profiting the way they would if they did it themselves. Manic Merch is perfect for musicians, movies, YouTubers, podcasts, meme makers, startups, and anyone else who has good ideas for merch designs. Let me tell you about some of the key features of Manic Merch. You can set up a store in minutes for no money down. All you have to do is upload your merch designs and tell us how much you want to make off each one and we'll take care of the rest. You can avoid all the headaches of customer service emails, packing up packages, and heading to the post office. There's no financial risk since you put no money down or headaches for you to start selling merch. Fans buy more merch when they get to choose how to express themselves. You can upload your merch designs and sell more merch by allowing fans to choose the colors and what they want them printed on. Whether it's t-shirts, sweatshirts, lighters, hats, or coffee mugs, they have over 20 different items that you can print on. You get to set your own prices where you can lower your prices if you want to sell more and raise them if you want to make more from each sale. You can also get the email of everyone who buys from you and you get paid every month on time and you also have the ability to track sales. Stop selling merch like an idiot and sign up for a store at manicmerch.com today. Chapter 2. What we enjoy about music. Before we get any further, I think it's important to examine what we enjoy about music. If we understand what makes us react positively to it, it becomes far easier to make ourselves happy with the music we make. Music is like a mood-altering drug. Music is an emotional drug that listeners use to change their mood to one they would rather feel. To clarify, at a neurological level, certain songs give us a change in the chemicals in our brain that can help get us to an emotion we would rather feel than the one we are currently feeling. Emotionally, some people medicate up and others medicate down, while some even do both. Some listeners put on a sad song when they're sad to feel better, finding comfort in it, whereas others put on a happy song to forget their pain. While it's argued that humans use music as filler to hold their attention or keep their thoughts quiet, every song also carries emotional stimulation that goes beyond the view of music as background noise for life. The most common use for music in our lives is to alter the way we're feeling, bringing us an emotion we'd rather feel than the one we presently feel. The moods music alters within us are much more complicated than simply happy or sad, while being highly subjective from person to person. The Dead Kennedys' California Uber Alice is a fun song to bounce around the room to for one person, but to another is the soundtrack for Smashing Windows. The Magnetic Fields lyrics in 100,000 Fireflies can make someone feel less alone in the world 
or to press the living hell out of someone else. Bass Nectar's You and Me is a beautiful love song to one person that provides comfort or another person's anthem to go crazy on the dance floor. The song All Right Now by Free is constantly played at conservative political rallies as a motivational song, yet its subject is about having sex with a meter maid you met an hour before, which runs quite contrary to conservative values. The intent of a song doesn't need to correspond to a listener's reaction since as long as an emotional resonance exists, listeners will feel that resonance and interpret their reaction according to their own emotional makeup. It's not always easy to understand why we're drawn to certain songs' emotional content. The world has a hard time understanding how a rich suburban brat craves hearing a gangster rap song about the lifestyle of extreme poverty when the biggest crime this privileged weeb has committed is taking an underage pole off a cigarette. One of the reasons we find a song outside of our normal tastes or lifestyle to be exceptional is because the artist found a way to make it exceptionally emotionally resonant. We can't help but get drawn into the extremely vivid picture they paint by showing us their authentic emotions. The power of it inspires a reaction in us. Just as we can enjoy the fun of pretending to be someone else by acting or performing, these songs elicit a change in us that helps enhance an act we want to emotionally embody for a moment. When creators make highly resonant music, listeners make exceptions to what they normally enjoy. They feel so much emotional power that normal reservations get put aside. These cravings are primal, just as dancing to music has existed for as long as human history has been recorded. These reactions are subconscious, which is why we see addictive behavior in music consumption. When we wonder why we enjoy music that seems to have little commonality with the emotions we regularly have each day, we ignore that we all have a wide span of feelings, so a song from outside our normal listening confines can be a highly resonant expression that we want to explore. When we wonder why we enjoy music that seems to have little commonality with the emotions we regularly have each day, we ignore that we all have a wide span of feelings, so a song from outside our normal listening confines can be a highly resonant expression of what we want to explore. When we hear music, we're usually meditating upon what the musicians are emotionally expressing. We explore these emotions as we latch onto the meaningful passages of wisdom accompanied by a resonance-strengthening sound that helps make it align to our current emotional state. As we focus on these emotions, we devote the time we need to get clarity on how we're feeling. Just because it gets in your head doesn't mean it's emotionally resonant. It's commonly assumed that a song is successful at its job as long as it gets stuck in your head. This is a half-truth, since songs need to possess both emotional potency and a repetitive hook that keeps revisiting your thoughts. Any song that employs repetition in a simple way can get in your head easily if you hear it enough. What's much more important than hooks that stick with you are the songs that emotionally impact you, which you return to time and time again when you're looking to feel a different emotion than the one you're presently feeling. The difference between the two is stark, in that many songs can get in your head after minimal exposure, but that doesn't mean you'll form a decades-long relationship with them when you seek an emotional accompaniment for the moments in your life. That takes an emotional resonance coupled with a memorable melody. The cute hooks of annoying melodies we get in our head are short flings instead of the deep, meaningful relationships we form with the songs we love. Music without the added depth of emotional resonance doesn't have the potency to make a lasting impact on your life. You can get any song in your head if you hear it enough, but that doesn't mean you'll feel anything from it. These are two entirely different traits since songs that make you feel a strong emotion are repeatedly reached for, whereas hooks that get in your head are played just to rid you of an annoying earworm that won't go away. The lack of music's potency is most apparent when you hear the soulless music that comes from ad agency jingle houses. The sole goal of jingles is to stick in your head to remind you of a product you may need at some point. Their bland lack of emotion is a feature, not a bug. When music is dictated towards what a boardroom wants compared to what an artist wants to express, it's always missing the authenticity that makes resonance for a listener to connect with. There's a reason musicians turn to jingles in their career as a last resort, not out of passion. They lack emotion in favor of infecting you with an annoying hook you'll constantly be reminded about.
This is why you'll hear a melody that's catchy, but devoid of emotion referred to as sounding, quote-unquote, too Disney. The children Disney target with their music aren't emotionally sentient enough to find emotional resonance in music the way adults do, so they only respond to the catchiest melodies possible. This hollow lack of passion is optimized for humans that don't yet have the problems that breed emotional complexity that you develop as you experience life. The goal of a classic Disney tune is to infect the listener with a hook, so they repeatedly come back to the product for repeated viewings, as opposed to the modern, optimized songs like the ones in Frozen, which are written to appeal to both adults and children. Ask any adult with young children how successful they are at this, and you're bound to get an exhausted eye roll. You can get the 1877 cars for kids jingle in your head from the repeated bludgeoning the ad campaign brings. But would you ever put it on to accompany an emotion you're feeling in life? There's a reason no one turns to the terrible theme songs for TV shows or jingles when they need an emotional void filled, since there's none to be found. Pop music isn't the same as a product. One of the biggest mistakes cynics make when discussing what succeeds on the pop charts is the belief that those producing the music are optimizing it for what the public wants to hear. I've yet to meet anyone among the producers and songwriters I've spent time with that knows what the public wants to hear. While many buffoons claim they can hear it, even the world's biggest hitmakers like Dr. Luke admit they can't tell. Instead, they try to make the best version of a song to their own ears. When we talk about commercial music being optimized to appeal to the masses, it's actually an evolution of musical development that has led to concise pop formats that appeal to the majority of people, just like innovation in any other field. Cynics frown on pop stars since they claim to be quote-unquote artists, yet they monetize this art in the most ridiculous ways. The common misconception is producers like Pharrell, Max Martin, and Dr. Luke have these labs where they do market research on how to make masses swallow fluffy pop songs whole. These producers are just artists making songs that feel emotionally resonant to them. Read any account of working with them, and it's far less evil than imagined in the deep, dark corners of the internet discussions of pop-hating underground music nerds. I love a good conspiracy, but you need to go to the major label boardroom where these songs get played for the real evil of the business. The ego-filled executives who push artistic compromise to appease focus groups since they believe they have formulas for mass success. Note, this evil happens after the artists are done with the song. To make matters worse, songs can rarely be tweaked to make algorithms or focus groups happy. Instead, the executives abandon the song, moving on to one of the hundreds of others vying for their marketing budget. These hundreds of discarded songs are the ultimate proof that these producers aren't crafting to a focus group, since otherwise there wouldn't be thousands of them never released by the major labels each year. Music is an evolving art where we continually discover new ways to make songs more resonant to the changing world we live in. As we observe adaptations that make songs more resonant, we adapt our creations to the resonances we've observed in others' work we enjoy. It's commonly thought a focus group study brought about the advent of a hook appearing in a song within seven seconds, when really, pop producers are just trusting their instincts, and that's what appeals to those instincts. Trust me, if you ever hang out with most pop producers, their attention span wouldn't get through a three-page study. Those who are successful at making pop are successful since they make the music they want to hear and have tastes that align with the public. This is why careers in pop are rarely sustained. These hitmakers evolve too far ahead of the public's taste, and their own taste becomes too advanced for mass consumption. This is why you'll also see the demise of some artists as they get too progressive for pop tastes or fail to evolve with the public by continuously releasing an emotional expression the public is no longer interested in after moving on to more resonant emotional expressions. Tastes evolve fast in the mainstream. If you chase them, you end up failing. 
unless you happen to evolve simultaneously and enjoy the direction they're headed. Songwriters don't predict trends and put them in their songs. Their musical fluency is inspired by those making cutting-edge work, which inspires them to apply their own spin on genres that will be tomorrow's trends. The misunderstood art of pop has always been that it's a format that has rules you have to work within, but can still have progressive tendencies. Kanye West puts it this way, The concept of commercialism in the fashion and art world is looked down upon. You know, just to think, what amount of creativity does it take to make something that masses of people like? Many poptimists would argue that despite the vacuous message of most pop today, it's the most difficult genre to create great work in since it's the most competitive and needs to include an overlapping intersection of both fresh and familiar. For pop music to work, it needs to have a freshness to the masses that's both innovative and somewhat new while not being too adventurous. This balance needs to be struck while crafting concise hooks that are effective in a format optimized for what the majority of listeners like. When a song from left field enters the top 40 charts, many ignorant blowhards say it's from the right palms being greased. While it's factually true that some palms need to be greased to get songs on top 40 radio, there's hundreds of songs that get the same grease as the hits that never make the top 200 since the public doesn't take to them. The public needs to respond to the song once it's played. If they don't, the palm greasing is money down the drain as the stations stop playing it. This is evidenced every time the top 40 charts get a left field hit like Gautier's Somebody That I Used To Know, Fun's We Are Young, or any of the countless other songs that sound like nothing else in the mainstream at the moment. Hipster music is pretentious, contrived, blah, blah, blah. Now that I'm done apologizing for pop, I'll shower and go back to listening to my favorite punk records. Speaking of those favorite punk records, on the other side of the argument is the ridicule that indie hipster acts get for their overly wrought concepts of making old-timey, sea-chanty-filled music, or whatever other ridiculously exaggerated micro-genre you can think of that hipsters are worshipping. While on the surface, their music can seem pretentious. When you look closer, it's formed by being intensely interested in a microgenre of music, where they become fluent in how to craft a unique emotion that appeals to others interested in this niche emotion. Just the same as any other genre, only their fashion choices are more ripe for ridicule from being more nerdy, weird, or cringeworthy. Trust me, I've mocked Mumford and all of his sons, as well as whatever C-punk ridiculousness we're laughing at on Twitter each day. But I've lived in the same neighborhood as the majority of hipster musicians for long enough to have discussed their work over beers, and they're simply fulfilling the emotion they want to hear. It's argued that they've contrived a weird image to get attention, but usually it's simply an interest they've pursued long enough to become good at embodying it. How they got to that interest may have been highly suspect, but by exploring their influences thoroughly and authentically expressing them, they've created a sound others enjoy. That's nice, but I need to make some money. Now that I've talked about how all of your friends' get-rich-in-music schemes are bound to fail, as you've probably guessed by now, this book isn't about getting rich in music quickly. Inevitably, right after I finish explaining that, I get accused of hating the monetization of music. I believe in making money off of music. I've made my soul living off of monetizing music since I was a teenager. In fact, I've never had a job that wasn't music-related since I left high school. I even like money, so I spent years writing this book to get more of it. If you enjoy this book or my last one, I've applied the same philosophies to these endeavors. I made what I'd want to read first, and hopefully it connects with you. So let's get this out of the way. I don't blame you for wanting to make money off your music. There's no conflict in monetizing your music unless you put money before your music being emotionally resonant to you. But you need to be guided by what you feel in order to make music that will make you any money. Wanting validation and writing for yourself aren't a contradiction.
Usually, after someone argues with me about the entanglement of money and creativity, the next argument I hear is that humans want validation for what they create. So doing this all for yourself isn't realistic. Craving validation is embedded in most of us. And if anything, it's more common than in most other creative fields with the attention-seeking musicians who are peacocking around town in eye-catching outfits. It's human nature that our brains enjoy being appreciated. It's also completely valid that humans feel beaten down when we're underappreciated. Validation occurs after the fact for artists who make what they love. When I make music or books, I do it to keep myself entertained, along with a feeling that my work needs to be in the world. But I won't be upset if you tweet how great this book is. In fact, it'll probably make my day. It isn't mutually exclusive to want praise for what you do and to create for yourself, but there is a sequence. You need to be happy with your work first, so then others can be happy with it after the fact. What makes music resonant? How emotion is communicated in a song. Figuring out how to convey emotion is one of the secrets of great songwriters. Artists are compelled to make music that incites an emotional reaction. Reacting to the chords, tempos, arrangements, sound effects, tones, and other variables of a song all goes into how you craft a song you want to hear. When writing a song, the writer will think of the emotion they want to convey until it's fully realized. The subtlest changes in tempo, rhythm, and the thousands of other variables in performance can all accentuate or diminish the level of emotion that's felt from a song. This accumulation of subtleties is what leads to a song's resonance. Look no further than the way great producers and songwriters talk about the way they compose music. One of the best examples of this is an episode of the podcast Song Exploder, where producer Ariel Rechshad, who's produced Adele, Vampire Weekend, Charlie XCX, among others, talks about developing a Carly Rae Jepsen song, describing how each choice affects the emotion of a song. Every synth pad in arpeggiation expresses an emotion that's either closer to or further from the intended emotion. Each choice made, whether it's a tone knob, rhythm, or single note modulation, either brings you further or closer to an emotion you're trying to convey. Accumulating the subtleties of these emotions to exactly where they should fall on the emotional spectrum applies to every single genre. The choices of every detail from the velocities of the synth hits, to how much compression is used, to how many vocal flaws are left in, to how organic the production is, will greatly determine the emotional reaction both you and listeners get from your song. No matter how quantized the beats and melody are, emotion is still conveyed. Authenticity is potent. Authenticity has always been what draws listeners into songs. But today, it's even more important. As I write this book throughout 2016, we see reality TV and YouTube stars on the rise, plus musicians who show their authentic, vulnerable emotions as opposed to the badly acted, implausible scenarios compromising the majority of TV and movies of yesteryear. The public has responded to two politicians who are perceived as authentic, while those who are scripted are regularly derided for it. Since we've grown to disdain those who think we can't see past their act, Fred Easton Ellis calls this a post-empire world, where when we fake our emotions to the public, everyone can see it since we now know what real, genuine emotion looks like. The veil of covering how we feel with contrived, polite, PG-rated versions of ourselves has been lifted, and there's no going back. Those in the public eye can no longer hide behind press releases or sanction interviews if they want to connect with an audience. Instead, they need to be honest to make connections through relatability on social media each day. The audience has grown callous to the fake facades of the past through the massive democratization of celebrity that's occurred in a world where gatekeepers have been thwarted by avenues such as YouTube that elevate authentic expression. Today, authenticity is currency. The more you expose, the more you're rewarded. Music is pulling back that veil each year, and the evidence is seen as lyrics get more honest. Instead of hiding depression and drug use in lyrical code, the nuance has been stripped, leaving no cover for songwriters to deny what everyone can see in plain sight. Talk of drug use and depression graced the red carpet of the MTV VMAs instead of the everything's fine poses of yesteryear. 
which would then be proved to be untrue, just as our instincts told us. What used to leak out in rare behind-the-scenes expose is now front and center as the basis of what artists share to the world. We've all experienced a friend wearing clothing that doesn't fit who they are. We sense the lack of authenticity as we stare with a questioning eye. Just the same, when a song lacks authenticity, our BS meters have been honed to react poorly to the frauds that litter our world. When we hear an imitation of the elements of another song, it confirms the lack of authenticity we already sensed. It clues listeners into an act that isn't expressing their own emotions by trying to gain fame through imitation. Since we're making music for ourselves first, it's important to understand that when you hold back from your authentic expression, it's less resonant inside of you as well. You are your own first audience member, which is why finding new ways to make music resonant within you is the only way it will connect with others. A lack of authenticity is heard when a singer delivers a stale performance lacking resonance. One of the reasons we need to write from a place of vulnerability is because without it, the singer won't have an emotion to express when they sing. By imitating someone else, you aren't focusing on translating what you feel into music. You're focused on copying someone which has no emotional resonance. Jake Bug talks about having to revisit the emotions he's felt when he performs a song to give it resonance. This practice gets confusing since singers can be singing another writer's lyrics, but the only way a song is delivered with resonance is when that singer can find a connection to the lyrics to emote with. Vulnerability allows us to connect with others. Vulnerability is the essence of connection, and connection is the essence of existence. Leo Christopher. An important part of this equation is the importance of vulnerability. When we inaccurately portray our emotions, we hinder our ability to connect with others. Being able to say what you truly feel in its full, uncensored feeling allows that connection. Just as listeners can perceive when you're inauthentic, when you lack the ability to be vulnerable, it can be sensed that you're not saying what you're really feeling in its entirety. Writing about an emotion that's safe to express or not telling the whole truth of your feeling out of the fear of others' reaction hinders the ability to connect with others who are feeling the same as you. When we become vulnerable by sharing our truth without fear, there's more to connect with by expressing the very real emotions we're scared to communicate. For those who don't understand the power of vulnerability, it's how we form deep connections with one another. When you talk with someone and hold back the truth, it usually leads to small talk that you forget in no time. When you allow yourself to be vulnerable by saying a deeper truth with someone else who understands it, this leads to great conversations. You may even remember that conversation for years to come as it gives you a new understanding of your own life. To connect with listeners, they must be able to empathize with the emotion you're expressing. The only way to make a listener feel emotional resonance is connecting with them, and this connection is only made deeper when you bring vulnerability into your music. We can only connect with emotions we've had ourselves, and the joy of connection is this understanding of each other. With vulnerability, we allow ourselves to say an emotion that's relatable to someone else. How often have we heard a song and found the way someone expresses a familiar emotion with a new genius twist that emotionally hits us? If you sing a song where you're hiding what you feel, how will that resonate with anyone? This connection is why some songs don't resonate with some people, yet resonate highly with others. The connection to a song is only formed if the listener understands the emotion that's conveyed. Friends can be puzzled when they love a song, yet their best friend who they connect with on so many levels doesn't understand it. Most of the time, the answer lies in that that person who doesn't feel it doesn't experience the emotion the way the song is conveying it. Since we don't all have the same experiences of feeling different colors of emotions as our friends, our connections to the emotions expressed in songs won't always be the same. Emotionally Painful Inspiration Charles Maggio is not only a member of Rorschach, one of the most influential metal hardcore bands ever, but he also runs one of the best indie labels to ever release music, Gordon Blanston. There's a great quote from him that stuck with me for 15 some odd years. Someone asked him why he no longer sings for a band and he replied, I'm healthy, 
My parents love me and have a great family. What do I have to write about? While there are plenty of great writers that experience the same stability who still manage to make great art, he has a point. A great deal of the emotionally resonant art is about a painful or passionate experience in the creator's life. One of the songs Charles is most known for is called Bone Marrow Biopsy, after having to undergo the procedure early in life. There's a reason Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, and Janis Joplin are some of the most emotionally resonant artists we've ever known. If you watched any of the recent documentaries about them, you could see that they felt more pain than the average person. It's often said the greatest creators are more sensitive than others, and these sensitivities allow them to hone in on how to express this deep feeling they experience. Their translation of their sensitivity to pain was so extreme that anyone could empathize, but not from feeling the same as them. Instead, their pain is so much greater than most that it spans a wide breadth of relatability. We're able to connect with them since when we felt pain, it's often a grain of salt compared to the authentic emotional resonance they express. We return to their songs consistently because when we feel pain, theirs is so much more intense than ours, so it's easy to connect with their painful expression of vulnerability. They have so much emotional resonance, we can easily find the ways to connect to the broad and powerful way they feel. As Natalie Maine said of Rick Rubin, finding what's emotionally potent will be the best arrow for your emotional bow. The pain in our lives becomes what's forcing itself out of us when it comes time to express ourselves since it's constantly on our mind. Author Brett Easton Ellis says, pain drives many of the great artists much more than joy. When we feel passionate about a thought, we get flooded with the need to perspire, which is the clue that we should be letting this spill over into our music. The reason the most intense emotions we experience make for the most potent subjects of our music is because they're authentic experiences that motivate a passion that guides us to create. With that said, plenty of songwriters in healthy relationships can observe others' troubles and feel passion towards them that turn into emotionally resonant perspiration. Being brave enough to say your most emotionally potent truth. If you want to hide how you feel, yet still talk to an audience about it, there's never been a greater way to disguise it than song lyrics. But this veiling in the name of covering how you feel doesn't allow others to relate to you. Writing about what's comfortable or veiled in complexity so that you can be safe from critique isn't relatable. The lack of authenticity when you hide what you feel is the ultimate dilution of potency of emotional resonance. Ambiguity can feel safe, but it hinders you from authentically expressing yourself to make a connection through music. If you want to express yourself, you need to do so without fear or judgment from your audience, friends, family, or anyone else. The evidence of having to write about what you feel most passionate about can be found throughout all genres of music in your record collection if you take the time to find it. James Alex of Beach Slang talks about this being the change he made in his music before starting the band. Seeing as he's the only example I know of a musician who appeals to teens on up to those in their 40s who found success with a new band at 38 years old, the example speaks volumes. For those looking for a less niche example, take Beyonce's Lemonade. The emotionally potent subject in her life was Jay-Z's infidelity. While it would be far easier to keep this grievance out of the public eye, she needed to voice what was most resonant within her by making lemonade when life handed her lemons. Songwriter Bonnie McKee, who's co-written a number of Katy Perry's hits, tells it like this. When we're writing with her, we sit down and talk to her and try to find out what's going on in her life and find out the kernel of truth. I want her to sing about something she cares about, so we talk about her life and what she's going through and try to weave it into something powerful and visual. Neo has said when he hears the right song for him to sing, it has to be an emotion he's already been feeling. Mark Ronson says when it came time to write Rehab for Amy Winehouse, we were walking down the street. We had just started working. We were three days in, and she was telling me a story about some stuff that had gone down in her life. She said, yeah, my family came over, and they tried to make me to go to rehab, and I was like, no, no, no. And I thought, oh, shit, that's quite hooky how you said that. If you're not opposed to it, we should go back to the studio and mess around with it. For many artists, talking about something so personal can be scary, but this is only one of countless examples of it paying off with a song that connected with millions of people.
What about subjects that aren't pain and love? It's good to start with something that's true. If you start with something that's false, you're always covering your tracks. Paul Simon. Our own troubles commonly inspire the most resonant expression. Yet there are also thousands of powerful songs written about the subjects that aren't pain and love. The first argument I hear about writing what's resonant to you is, what about all the rappers who only rap about money? At times, the most emotionally resonant thought someone could express is their lust for money, since the struggle of being poor is all that's on their minds. And if that's all you think about, you need to express it. Monotrix Point never writes songs to envision a sci-fi film through music, since that's what he's most passionate about. Grimes says she imagines making a trailer for a fictitious movie. On White Lung's Paradise, Mishway said she had little to purge in the way of relationship struggles since she's now happily married. So she adapted her obsession with serial killers by writing from their perspective. Plenty of songwriters adapt the stories that are told to them by others or read in books as they feel resonances with them. As long as that's what's trying to get out of them, they can do it in a way that's resonant to them and others. Just as we discussed before, listeners can only identify with emotions they understand. Love and loneliness are the most intense emotions we feel, and therefore easy to connect with. This doesn't mean there aren't important songs to be written about a variety of subjects, since love has been expressed in so many shapes and forms. While more listeners can relate to unrequited love than serial killers, it's shocking what can resonate with a listener when it's authentically expressed. You can even be most passionate about partying. As vacuous as that sounds, that's some musician's truth. Morrissey was able to sustain half a dozen albums by writing passionately about feeling nothing at all. You must not force your passion towards a subject that's not what you authentically feel. What matters is the passion to pursue your ideas along with fearlessness of showing others how you feel and your authentic need to have something to say on the subject. The Intricacies of What We Enjoy in Music The myth that originality is what makes the best music. Authenticity is invaluable. Originality is non-existent. Jim Jarmusch. Those in hipster music critic circles usually celebrate music that appears to be original or creative. Only the most brazen music listeners judge music on a scale of how derivative it is. If you're one of them, I challenge you to look through your record collection to find if what you actually enjoy is the music that contains as little derivative material as possible. Instead, I bet you'll find a lot of records that feel emotionally resonant that contain a common emotion you crave. If you enjoy Elliot Smith, Public Enemy, Dead Mouse, The Menzingers, or Black Sabbath, I bet you also enjoy artists that are derivative of them. You've also probably heard a few artists with that same influence, but you don't enjoy their records. This is a reaction to the artist being unable to do the sound with as much emotional resonance as you're used to. We don't react emotionally to the most original music we've ever heard. We react to songs that use new tools to bring us a new level of resonance in an emotion we desire. What's often perceived as originality is actually creating a more resonant version of an emotion we enjoy in music than what we've heard in the past. The musicians we perceive as original find new ways of communicating an emotion that bring these songs a greater resonance than we've heard from those before them. Cynics frequently degrade certain genres as derivative, generic, or all sounding the same. This derision often comes from an outsider's perspective that lacks an understanding of the intricacies of a genre that the audience finds great depths to explore emotionally. When a classical music fan hears Converge or The Replacements, they think it all sounds the same and vice versa for a rock fan who's uneducated in classical music. The perception of whether music is derivative, generic, or whatever we want to call it is based on the familiarity a listener has within a genre. Pop punk is widely derided for being one of the most generic genres. 
Yet you can meet pop punk fans who will be fully ignorant of other subgenres within the genre they enjoy since there's so much variety within it to listen to. Most music can be divided into niches of niches, and those who consume it are often burrowing down a well of an emotion they constantly crave a fix of. What usually makes someone think a song is original is they haven't heard the influences that the artist is drawing from. An ignorance of Pink Floyd would lead you to believe Radiohead's OK Computer redefined rock. And ignorance of Autiker would lead you to think Clark invented a new genre, although none of these thoughts help music to be more emotionally resonant. However, if you're ignorant of past influences, these sounds can be far more resonant since you've never experienced the emotion found within the songs they're deriving inspiration from. Anyone who's ever watched one of those YouTube videos that show nearly every pop song as the same four-chord progression or enjoyed a three-chord techno or punk song should be able to pick up that originality isn't what brings about emotional resonance. It may win some points in our analysis by interesting us for a moment, but the music that ends up being what we revisit past initial listens are the songs that give us a feeling we want to experience again. If we judge songs on originality, then Can, Africa Bambata, and This Heat would be far more revered than Led Zeppelin, Slipknot, or Nas. Even when songs sound somewhat similar, if they're emotionally resonant, you still enjoy them. Excluding the music that music theory majors make for each other to listen to, which only other music theory majors appreciate, the rest of the world is looking for music that moves them emotionally. While there are a few nerds who have ingested so much music that they believe they need originality to cure their jaded musical tastes, what they're really looking for is someone who brings a new resonance to an emotion they've come to crave that they mistake for originality. Familiarity is necessary for resonance. Our brains are wired to respond to repetition and familiarity, which actually gives originality a disadvantage. When songs employ samples, this is usually a hack to give familiarity to a listener, since an audience is more likely to enjoy what's already familiar with a small new twist. When teen heartthrobs Five Seconds of Summer took Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf vocal melody and put new words to it, most music nerds' first reaction is to yell, RIP OFF! But in the demanding world of major label record sales, they see this as a hack to getting a hit that's worth paying a royalty for, especially since it comes at the expense of the songwriter's royalties instead of the record label's bottom line. Since most Five Seconds of Summer fans have probably heard their parents playing the Duran Duran classic in the car, this allows the hook to seep into their brains faster. Originality doesn't pay when it comes to hooks, as long as they're done with authenticity. We actually deride music that's too original. If a song sounds too unfamiliar, containing little cues for emotion we've grown to understand, it's hard for us to have an emotional reaction to it. Our brains are often unable to feel emotions attached to the sounds we hear in the genres of world or experimental music. They give us little to no familiar musical guides, so the music doesn't feel resonant to us. Music is only resonant to us when we understand the emotional cues that are communicated. So if the only emotion expressed is sound manipulation, or from a culture that we don't have commonality with, will sound foreign and unrelatable to us. For evidence of this, look to the countless artists who were too ahead of their time or who make music we perceive as original, yet we have no urge to hear their work again. In psychology, there's a concept called schema, which are mental structures of preconceived ideas or a framework representing some aspect of the world or a system of organizing and perceiving new information. It's difficult to find resonance unless a work has familiar schemas but has small deviations that exceed our expectations. Record producer turned neuroscientist Daniel Levitin did a study that showed our brains respond to a sweet spot of musical familiarity and complexity. To make music resonant within ourselves as well as others, we have to follow what's expected and deviate in small ways that increase the resonance. Musically, to feel resonance with a song, we must hear emotional cues we're familiar with, along with a few new cues that up the emotional ante to give us more resonance. Note that for these new cues to be effective, they must augment the resonance of the song, since new for new's sake doesn't hold emotional value. The end justifies the means. One of the most interesting aspects about music is no one cares how it happened. 
outside of those who want to imitate it, of course. They just care that it feels good. While the first Rage Against the Machine record had a disclaimer that read, no samples, keyboards, or synthesizers used in the making of this record, it didn't take knowing that to have an emotional impact. But for those who cared, it developed a great admiration for the players. Many musicians will want to give every listener a caveat before someone listens to their music like, It was all done live. We only had one week to make the record. This is just the demo. We didn't use any pitch correction. Or countless other qualifications that don't ever make a listener enjoy a song. Listeners cannot be bribed by context into liking a song, but it can make them respect the artist more and get more deeply involved in their appreciation of their music. Making music that takes context to appreciate ignores that we want to hear music that inspires an emotional reaction. If you have to make caveats and qualifications to anyone who hears your music for them to appreciate it, odds are nobody will appreciate it since it lacks emotional resonance. It needs to be good enough that they enjoy it from emotionally reacting to it. Music is an emotional conversation. Linguist Noam Chomsky says that all humans are biologically programmed to gain knowledge. This programming leads us to exhaustively continue conversations until we thoroughly understand the subjects that interest us. Brian Eno once said, What's exciting about art is you're hearing the latest sentence in a conversation you've been having all your life. This is a great way of looking at why music is more or less resonant to us. When we think of musicians as emotional communicators that inspire conversations about an emotion within our minds, you can gain a deeper understanding of why you enjoy music. To explore this idea, let's think of genres of music as broad emotional categories where each type of emotion is a genre of music. I think of the musicians we love as teachers of a certain subject that are conversing with your emotions. If you change out the word conversation for music in this analogy, it probably reflects the music listening experiences you've had throughout your life. When you're young, you're thrilled with most conversations that talk about a subject you're interested in that you can comprehend, whether it's the best explanation of the subject or not. The first time you have a conversation that's emotionally resonant, the person explaining the idea doesn't need to be the person who first thought of the idea, as long as they communicate it in a way that's stimulating to you. It's so exciting you're thrilled by those who can communicate this emotion, even if they don't do it best. Later on, you may find those who do it better and think less of those who first communicated this emotion. Similarly, the innovators of a genre of music aren't necessarily the ones you enjoy the most. Someone may come along and communicate the emotion of the genre in a way that's more resonant to you than others. They just seem to speak your language better. The originators of this emotion didn't find the way to make it most resonant to your emotions. So we may enjoy those who explored the emotion after the originator. This can stem from sharing a common region, age, or emotional disposition that's more akin to you than those who are widely celebrated in the genre. When you have a conversation, it may touch on other subjects and defy easy categorization. Just as our emotions are nuanced, it cannot be simply described with a single word. There are parts of songs that resonate with us and others that fall flat since they're not emotions we connect with. Just as you won't identify with every song on an album. If an emotion is expressed that you don't feel resonance with, it can leave you feeling apathetic just as when someone talks about how they feel and you've never experienced that emotion. Occasionally, you'll have a conversation that changes the way you think. You'll hear such a great expression of what you feel, it inspires epiphanies for years to come. Other times, you'll be having a conversation just to pass the time. You may have had this conversation many times and know every source of it and find it to be boring, since you prefer those you've originally had this conversation with. There are countless reasons a conversation may not be resonant with you. As we have this conversation with different communicators again and again, we'll grow bored if it doesn't bring new ways of talking about the subject and will crave new ways of discussing it. If you have a conversation too many times, it becomes less resonant and you no longer wish to have it just as a song can be highly resonant at first and then become annoying after repeated listens. If it's done in too complex a way that you can't understand it, it won't be resonant. Some musicians may only be good at certain conversations. You may only enjoy their ballads or their bangers, since when they communicate those emotions, they align with what's resonant within you. 
The maturation of your emotions in music. As our emotions change from the angst and maturity of our teenage years, we gain the experience of having heard different resonances of emotion throughout the songs we've heard in our lives. We also build a tolerance to inauthentic, less resonant acts. When we're teenagers, we don't care that songs are similar, shallow, and less authentic since the bar to be emotionally resonant within us is so low that we can enjoy the same emotional note hit over and over again. Our brains are continuously growing a callus to the emotions we hear in music. While older fans may grow to only enjoy familiar emotions, commonly, the older you get, the less time you devote to being open to hearing new music you enjoy. As the common saying goes, the music you love at 18 stays with you for your whole life. As a listener, we may be stimulated by the first song we hear that has a small amount of emotional resonance, but in time as we hear other groups, we grow less impressed by them. Those acts hit an emotional resonance for us that were desperate to comfort as the pains of overly wrought emotion from puberty need to be constantly comforted. We then get past this and mature in our emotional needs, and we come to a place where we need more refined emotional stimulation. Just as a dollhouse or a toy train is interesting to us as a kid, we grow to become more interested in complex interests to hold our attention. Our emotions mature, so we need to express ourselves in more mature ways. This is one of the hardest parts of making music, because your fans turn to you to make a certain emotional lexicon as well. But as you age and mature, these emotions change, and they grow as much as you do. For your career's sake, this hopefully happens together. Otherwise, they abandon you for those expressing emotions more resonant to them. Sadly, when it comes to record sales, the majority of music is bought by 15 to 24-year-olds. This isn't to say you need to make generic music to appeal to them, but more to say that there's a reason you don't see IDM and prog rock on the pop charts. Most listeners never evolve to the level of musical maturity it takes to understand the emotions expressed in these genres. This is also not to say that complex and interesting music isn't always rewarded with record sales. Look to recent hits by Diplo and Skrillex or Queen and Radiohead success. Even a song like NSYNC's Pop has an extremely complex production, as do countless Timbaland tracks from the aughts. Even if a song is resonant with you at one time, that doesn't mean you won't change emotionally and forget it. With that said, our nostalgia for who we used to be allows us to appreciate that music we loved back then. But those who communicate this emotion once we move past it won't resonate within us, since we're no longer open to hearing their expression. Chapter 3. The Balance of the Head and the Heart Rational thoughts never drive people's creativity the way emotions do. Neil deGrasse Tyson Unfortunately, it's not only financial gains or the expectations of others that get in the way of actualizing the music you love. The way debates play out in your head is often the cause of the greatest failures in making music. There's a constant war between the head and the heart being waged inside every musician. The head being the application of organizational ideas and concepts to music, while the heart is what guides you to craft a song emotionally. To understand this war, we should understand what causes strife between the two. The head often tries to steer a song away from its emotional resonance. Many musicians think about playing a cool chord or an overly complex drum pattern instead of the one that feels good in the song. Thinking about what's impressive to a bunch of music nerds or more fun to play instead of what feels good is a fast way to a song no one wants to hear. The crazy riff you're playing or a falsetto note you're hitting needs to work in an emotional context in your song or else your song loses resonance. The balance of what's fun to play and what's emotionally resonant. One of the biggest struggles between the head and the heart is to gain a perspective on what's fun to play isn't always emotionally resonant. Anyone who's made a rock record has probably struggled with a guitarist wanting to show how fast they can play a scale, a singer who wants to show off their range, or a drummer trying to play a fill that stops the song in its tracks. Just as the ridiculous scales you hear in American Idol auditions or rappers who do 20 voice imitations per song rarely make their way to the masses, recognizing that showing off the coolest part you can play is often the opposite of what's emotionally resonant. 
To me, this is an easily defined choice, since the head is what enjoys the challenge of playing a difficult scale by craving an ego gratification when others see a difficult part played on an instrument. But what stops the part from being worthy of inclusion in the song is when others give you the reaction that it detracts from the emotion of the song. While I don't believe every time someone says that a part is being played for the musician's own enjoyment, it's always true, when numerous collaborators agree, it's time to take that statement as a huge warning. Some of the best music made is both fun and challenging as a musician, yet still emotionally resonant. Figuring out the alignment between the two is the key to satisfying the head and the heart. Editing out parts that don't enhance a song's emotion or that favor egotistical showing off is crucial to making resonant music. I'm not saying that every song that's musically complex or fun to play is detrimental to its emotional resonance. If anything, I feel the opposite, which is reflected in my record collection of nerdy progressive music. Unique chord voicings or odd time signature mathletics can still have an emotional impact, but emotional content needs to come first. Prioritizing emotion before complex composition is what separates Dillinger Escape Plan, Aphex Twin, Animal Collective, Kanye West, Yes, Battles, Cashmere Cat, Dialect, Radiohead, and countless other successful musicians who push the envelope from every other progressive musician stuck in their hometown with no fans. They've learned how to take their massive understanding of composition to reinforce an emotional sentiment they're trying to convey. With every weird chord or strange treatment they come up with for their music, they make sure it's reinforcing the emotion they're trying to convey within a song. What we're calling the heart is much more subjective. The heart is where your passions are. It's where you hold what you love the most. The heart is also how you emotionally feel when you hear a song. The single most important skill in actualizing your music is to trust how you react so you can alter your songs to be aligned with the emotion your heart's trying to convey. This is also the most primitive skill you have as a musician that everyone is born with but messes up as their brain gets in the way. When listeners hear highly resonant songs, they don't know how a musician was guided to get there. They're unaware that a musician has an emotional target in mind, a feeling they're trying to convey that's easy for them to make decisions based on what element feels either more or less similar to this emotion. This practice is what allows musicians to make decisions that make songs more resonant. The common confusion for those who understand the head and the heart dichotomy is that the head is the enemy. The head has a place in music, so it shouldn't be seen as evil. It can figure out the concepts and the traits we find interesting in music. It gives us some of our best ideas along with organizing them. But we need to use our heart to check the head's contributions. This is a constant balance in creating, so the path you take is a large part of who you are. The head comes up with fantastic ideas, but without the heart there to check that these ideas have an emotional resonance, your songs will suffer from working well on paper but falling flat emotionally. This is most evident in those who know music theory and every rule not to break who then make music that's as boring as can be to every listener who encounters it. Odds are you've encountered the musician who can tell you how amazing their music is because they use all organic instruments or compose on sheet paper. Despite their breadth of knowledge, their music is uninspiring of any emotion that yields a song you never want to hear ever again. It has no feeling and sounds exactly like what it is. Someone showing off their musical ideas and not their emotions. They're too obsessed with the methods used instead of the way it feels when hearing it back. When reviewing the sheet music of their work, the chords all work in a genius concept, but even to their ear, it doesn't work as well as it should when played aloud. They ignore the heart so their music falls on ears that wish they were deaf when they hear it. When a musician learns too much theory, they often turn off their heart's instincts. They assume that what they're doing is correct since it's abiding by the rules like a coloring book. This unchecked imitation turns off the emotional reaction within a musician. If a person they admire sings like this, uses that amp, or record it a certain way, they believe they should do the exact same thing. 
Instead of experimenting to find an emotional texture, they use preconceived ideas or rules instead of checking to make sure it reinforces an emotion they wish to convey. Ideas, concepts, treatments, and theory are necessary to figure out how to further an emotion, but need an emotional check to see that they further the resonance of a song. It's important to understand that music focused on the head isn't even resonant to the creators themselves. They're proud they made a work that makes sense on paper or is impressive to other musicians or is fun to play to challenge their physical abilities instead of what's right for the song to give it maximum resonance. They don't even consider that a song should have an emotion since they think of music in terms of acrobatic ability or an achievement in impressing other musicians. Every experienced producer has the story of the chord that shouldn't work in theory but sounds amazing in a song, or a song that breaks all the rules of music theory, but is the best one in the artist's catalog. There's also the common scenario of a song that no matter how hard you try to produce it, it never has the emotional impact of the demo. Musicians self-sabotage their songs by allowing the head to run wild with ideas they believe add depth, but when unchecked by emotion, destroy their song's resonance. These decisions must be made by letting the heart choose what's emotionally resonant, not just interesting in theory. Letting your emotions tell you if concepts, ideas, theory, and rules are working in your song is the practice of putting the heart first. Early on in my life, I didn't understand this emotional resonance concept at all. I was constantly confused why some songs sounded so powerful while others didn't. When I heard my favorite artists talk about their heart or music that speaks to their soul, I rolled my eyes and thought they should stop talking artsy gibberish garbage. It took me years of rebellion against any saying that sounded new age or hippie to get that there was a real tangible concept here that has nothing to do with souls or crystals, but instead the practice of finding what you're passionate about by turning that into a song. Once I understood this concept, it became obvious which songs are made from emotional inspiration versus those made to impress others. The difference between the head and the heart. To further understand this separation, these are the common roles for the head and the heart. The heart. Tells you apart feels melancholic, happy, exciting, heavy, dirty, etc. Inspires emotions to draw from to turn into songs. Warns you when a part doesn't feel right in a song. Checks your ideas to see if they inspire an emotional reaction such as goosebumps, dancing, headbanging, or whatever other reaction you'd like to elicit. The head. Thinks about rules, theory, concepts, and other constructs. Figures out ways to elaborate on your ideas. Checks your emotional response to see if it can be optimized by using some logic, such as speeding up a song for intensity or simplifying a melody so it breathes more. The head thinks about rules, theory, concepts, and other constructs. Figures out ways to elaborate on your ideas. Checks your emotional resonance to see if it can be optimized by using some logic, such as speeding up a song for intensity or simplifying a melody so it breathes more. Separating thinking about music from reacting to music. There's commonly two very separate trajectories in musicians' growth as they become proficient in their musicianship. A classically trained student learns every rule but ignores the emotional part of performance. As they get older, they learn to play with an emotion that gives their performance a feeling that becomes more appealing to listen to instead of sounding like a quantized MIDI performance. The opposite end of the spectrum is the punk kid who wants to express their anger by figuring out three chords on a guitar while screaming out of key with a ton of passion but little musicality or technical accuracy. As years go on, they learn music theory, honing this anger into a melding of the two into music that has both intense emotion and refined songwriting. Musicians who don't know music theory are convinced they're better for it, just as those who do are convinced they're in the superior camp. There's an argument to be made for both sides using the example of the thousands of great musicians on both sides of the aisle. What I'd argue is this is a false dichotomy. Instead, what they have in common is they're both proficient in two different but essential parts of music. The musicians who don't know music theory are listening to their heart, but at times they don't know a solution to why an element isn't working that someone who knows theory can easily spot. 
They get plagued by frustrating bouts of not being able to fix small problems, such as rhythms not locking up or an out-of-key harmony in their music that seems daunting to fix. Their heart allows them to make emotionally resonant music, but their lack of knowledge prevents them from fixing glaring flaws that would be easily spotted by a more educated musician. But those who know theory get caught in doing what's right in theory. While being unaware that they're following musical rules that are boring and not at all emotionally resonant. Many classically trained musicians, such as Yo-Yo Ma, first learned to be technically proficient at an instrument, later learning to play it emotionally as they progressed as a musician. They learn strict rules they're afraid to break since they're constantly reciting instead of feeling, using far too much head and not enough heart. Amazingly enough, many of the top music schools in America spend little to no time teaching emotional expression. The artist who doesn't know theory eventually figures it out. Even if they don't know the proper terms or how to write it on paper, the theory-trained musician usually has to train themselves to turn off their head to listen to their heart. When both sides come to this stage, they're able to make emotionally resonant work. Part of making great music is evaluating where you are on the spectrum of theory, head, and emotion, heart, to make sure you compensate for the other side. Learning to balance the head and the heart by not letting either overtake the process is one of the most crucial skills of creativity. Letting your emotions guide you by allowing your head to sort these emotions into tangible work can come naturally to some and take years of work for others. Regardless of where you fall on the spectrum, it's important to consider how you can improve this relationship in your work. Believing stories instead of reacting to what you hear. Sadly, the facts of how records get made are filled with inaccurate half-truths. Look no further than the widespread acceptance of producer Joe Barisi punking listeners into believing he recorded tools drums in a helium-filled room, or a Queens of the Stone Age record with a single microphone. If that weren't enough, there's a long line of musicians assuming what someone uses live is what they use in the studio, despite the two rarely being the same. Today, musicians see a synth that a producer's racket assume that's the reason a song sounds great when actually it's been broken for five years but looks great sitting there. Musicians fall to the trap of trying to emulate inaccurate accounts instead of trusting their instincts by reacting to what they hear when trying to find the sounds that will give them the emotional response they're looking for. They neglect that the way their idols find the gear they use is utilizing the same imitation with an added check to make sure the tool can get them the sound that will paint their emotional picture they want to make. There's nothing wrong with reading interviews, but far too many musicians follow myths they hear about their music instead of analyzing the techniques they hear about and seeing if they help further their emotional intent. The head tries to solve problems to save us the process of reacting, but the reaction is the most essential part of making emotionally resonant music. When it does this, it turns off our reactions, causing us to forgo checking to make sure we're getting the result we think we're getting. Thanks for listening to this chapter. Stay tuned next week for another chapter. Like I said, this is available till July 1st for free. The Kindle book is 99 cents on Amazon till July 1st as well. And if you enjoy this, please, 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 please tell other people about it. That's why I'm doing this. Thank you so much for listening.